Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first ever podcast of The Populist, which also doubles as your online lecture for this class of democracy, dictators, and development. And today, we are going to be talking about the state. And in going through this, we're going to be defining some concepts, the state, state capacity, weak and failed states, things like that. And then why states? Why did they emerge and expand? And then what are some of the characteristics of modern states and some of the functions? What do they actually do? And so in going through this, hopefully it helps understand some of the stuff that you've read. And hopefully you've already done the reading. This will make a lot more sense if you've done that and gone through that. And can reference this to help solidify stuff that you've already already read and already gone through. And, of course, below this, there's the comment section. If things aren't clear, make sure to post questions, um, comments, different things like that. And if somebody asks a question you think you know the answer, feel free to respond. And I'll, I'll be checking it as well to make sure that uh, there aren't any misleading answers or wrong answers to questions on there. But if you do it in that format, it, it helps just generate the conversation instead of me getting 30 emails like, hey, what were you talking about on this? But if there is something major that a lot of people didn't get, then you know the next week on uh, The Populist, I will address that and kind of clear some of those things up. Okay, so without further ado, let's get going and talk about the state. So the modern state, it can be hard for Americans to grasp because we've got this federalist system that's got different levels of government. We've got the federal government and the state government and the local government and sometimes county governments and all of this stuff. And it's different from a lot of unitary states, which we'll get into the difference between those concepts a little later. But you know, most places have unitary states where things all come from the the center, and it doesn't have all of these different levels of government. Um, but nevertheless, we still feel the state, and we see it present in our in our daily lives with all the rules that we have to follow, and law enforcement, and having to go to school when when you're younger, and things like that. So, the modern state is the most important form of political organization in modern politics because it's nearly universal. You know, there's only a few places in the world that don't have states. It's like Somalia or South Sudan and places, I guess South Sudan still has a government, but Somalia doesn't. Um, you know, Iraq there for a while was kind of in this uh, middle ground where it, it didn't really have a functioning government, but it wasn't absolute chaos, but it was like a civil war and you had these different things going on. But outside of that, almost every place has a state. And in its ideal form, when an ideal form is simply a concept that uh, political scientists use to say, okay, for this concept, if it was perfect, what would it look like? Um, in its ideal form, the state is characterized by centralized control of the use of force, bureaucratic organization, and the provision of public goods. Okay, so that is what makes it up. Max Weber is probably the most famous uh, definition. He gives the most famous definition of the state. And he says, the state is the central political institution that exerts a monopoly on the legitimate use of force within a given territory. So even though that's a very short definition, 
it definitely has a lot to it. So let's break that down a little bit. So what, what he's getting at by saying legitimate is he's mean, he means that it is recognized by members of the society as generally justified. This is not made up by political scientists. We don't determine what or what is or is not legitimate. Okay, this is what people will accept as necessary for society. Okay, so police show up to handle a violent altercation or a traffic accident, and that starts the legal process, and you go through all of that, and then the judge or the jury makes their ruling. Um, the violence can violence in air quotes can happen, you know, it, when the police make somebody come with them or arrest them or, you know, if somebody has to go to jail or is forced to pay money because of the way that the judge or the jury ruled, that that is considered a legitimate use of force because it's gone through the legal channels. Okay, and if we think about it, if, if no central authority is able to use force, then maybe anybody can just use force, but that will make security or society less secure and less prosperous. Okay, so if, if you make somebody upset with you for whatever reason and they decide to take things in their own hands and demand money from you or physically harm you or your property, uh, that's going to be considered illegitimate. They don't have the backing of the state. And so if they hurt you because, I don't know, you walked across their yard or something silly, I don't know, um, then they'll be subject to to the law. Okay, now we go back to medieval times. I mean, there were more sources of legitimate use of force. Okay, so this is before the modern state emerged. Okay, they, they weren't centralized, though. So you had the kings, and maybe you had the nobility, and maybe you had the church, all seen as legitimate uses of force. They could all do it without really any anybody coming back to them and saying, well, you have no right to do this. But it wasn't centralized the way that a state is today. Okay, so what, what we're really getting at is the fact that in places with modern states, legitimate violence is very concentrated in the military and the law enforcement. Okay, if a, if a state is well-functioning, there should be much lower levels of interpersonal conflict than in other systems. Also, this should not be taken as everything the state does is legitimate. I mean, all we have to do is look at the uh, recent police shootings and things like that, that it can be done and they can be punished if they're breaking their own rules. they got to follow uh, certain dictates. It's not like the state is totalitarian and immune from following rules or following laws. Um and this also shouldn't mean that uh, states with high capacity are nonviolent. Okay, that just that doesn't mean that the state doesn't exert any force or use any force. It just means that the force that is used by the state is generally done in a legitimate way that follows the rules. And as I said earlier, it's not that that always happens, but um, if we're talking about a well-functioning state, that should be. Um, that should be what happens. Okay, and I mean, really, we're, we're getting at this thing that the states are simply the best political organizational type for concentrating and exerting force that has come into being. So that lets things get done. Okay, and that takes us to 
our first concept to or our next concept to really break down and that's state capacity. So state capacity is really just a state's ability to accomplish its goals or get things done. All right, so its ability to do things and do what it sets out and wants to do. And this has changed through time because if we go back to 200 years, early 1800s, something like that, and look at what was considered a state with high capacity and its ability to get things done, it's definitely different in Napoleonic France than it is in the the United States today or China today or uh, the United Kingdom or Germany or whichever one of these states you would you would pick as having high capacity. Okay, so when we get into capacity, what we're really talking about, there's three characteristics of state capacity. The first is that the state has established a monopoly on the use of force so they can control violence. Okay, you don't have... Um, the Wild West. You don't have gangs running around out there patrolling. The mobs not running half of the country. Okay, the state has established the monopoly on the use of force. The next characteristic is that there's a properly functioning bureaucracy. Okay, and what this means is that there's low levels of corruption because you're never going to completely get rid of corruption in any system. Um, and there's it can also get things done like. Defending the country, creating infrastructure, public goods, education, public health, taxing the population. Uh, Those are all things that would be characteristics of a properly functioning bureaucracy. And then the last characteristics of characteristic of state capacity is that it can maintain institutions and the rule of law. And the rule of law is simply just getting at that laws are applied consistently to everyone. Okay, which even in some of the states with the highest capacity that's not 100% the case. Again, this is an ideal type. Um, let's not be naive and think that that actually applies anywhere in the world. Okay, and, and But all of these are important. It's important to have a certain level of uh, institutional stability in the role of law because it gives citizens a predictable and manageable environment. Okay, um, so, you know, you want your money to be worth about what it was worth yesterday, tomorrow. Okay, so like tomorrow, if a dollar is worth uh, one euro and 20 cents, you want it a week from then to be worth about roughly that so people can make investment decisions and, um, you know, people know that prices at the grocery store aren't going to wildly uh, jump around. Okay. Also, I mean, thinking about this, it's uh, like this class. Um, if I was to apply the the deadlines for certain things to one portion of the class and not to the other, well, that's not fair. And people are going to just they're either going to just ignore them or they're going to call me out and say, you know what, this is this is biased and it's you know you're treating some people one way and some people the other and. You know, people were going to be like, well, I'm not going to turn my stuff in on time because you didn't make this person turn it in on time. So making sure that laws or uh, rules are applied consistently to everyone is really important for state capacity because it creates that manageable and predictable environment. So people understand what is going to happen in a general way in their near and short term futures.
Okay, so the next part to get into is what's referred to as failed and weak states. I think in your book it says failed and fragile states. You know, it's, you know, interchangeable. So these are states that cannot perform their expected functions. So all of the stuff going through about, um, you know, having a legitimate, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force um, and all of the other characteristics I just went through, these would be states that, that can't do that. There's generally many rival groups vying for power. So, I mean, here you're going to think Somalia, Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, places where it's not clear who's actually in control. These weak and failed states are also characterized by little to no public service provisions. So we're really talking about things like education, healthcare, basic infrastructure such as roads, ports, bridges, things that are needed in order for there to be economic growth and economic activity, which is tied intimately to um, weak states and strong states. Okay, And as you can imagine, this is terrible for the citizens. Um, and it also creates a breeding ground for terrorists. I mean, we think back to Afghanistan before 9-11. I mean, the Taliban was able to take over a very weak state and it remained weak and allowed al-Qaeda to plan 9-11 and have their terrorist training camps and things in Afghanistan. More recently, places like Syria and Iraq were very weak states, continue to be very weak states, if not failed, and they allowed ISIS to come into being and then you know, the United States, among others, had to send troops in and um, offer aid and support to the groups fighting ISIS. And it really, you know, there was no legitimate monopoly on the use of force in either place. And so this area that ISIS kind of carved out for it, there's all of these groups, as I was just saying before, um, they're vying for power. And it's not actually known who's in control. Okay? So... You know, these are characteristics we find of weak and failed states. Okay, and then also, if, if you're interested in this stuff, you can look at the failed states index online. All you have to do is look up failed states index, and it'll have a map, and it'll show you the most stable states all the way down to places like Somalia and Yemen that are basically not functioning today. Okay, and so the next thing to move on to. Um, is the state and society relationship. So the state is not something that's separate from society, okay? It's part of society, and society is made up of all of these large and overlapping social networks, all the way down to friendships, to religious groups, certain media ties, professional organizations, things like that. So states have the concentration of formal power, but a lot of other political activity happens outside of the state. It doesn't all happen within the confines of, of the state and the state controlling everything. Because if that was the case, you would find yourself in an authoritarian or totalitarian regime. And that's not everywhere. So this political activity that happens outside of the state, that's where the state and society relationship comes in. And there's a couple different parts to that. So you've got civil society, and this is defined as the space in society that's outside of the organization of the state, where citizens come together to organize themselves in ways that have political implications. So here we're talking labor unions, um, social clubs, like you're talking Elks Club, uh, Kiwanis, the Mason 
Freemasons, things like that. Uh, religious groups, you know, churches and, um, you know, religious groups, they, they come together and they try to influence policy for sure. Um, and they, they come, all of these different types of groups, they can organize, they analyze politics and make claims on the state or lobby the state. And the state isn't necessarily beholden to these groups because if it was, then the state's not actually the one in control, but it has to still be responsive to its citizen. Okay. To its citizens. Um, generally you see this in the stronger democracies. Okay. The authoritarian States, when it comes to, uh, civil society and these, um, social groups will generally, they'll, they'll either try to co-opt them and, you know, have put people on the inside or find ways to make them uh, work in a way that will enhance the power of the state or they just won't, won't let them happen. OK, um, it's more likely in authoritarian regimes that these groups, if they do get together, they're not necessarily interested in the well-being of the citizenry. It's going to be the elites getting together to find out how they can leverage their power in some way or another. Okay, so the state isn't separate from society, and I think this is important to understand. Is and this is you know where lobby groups and civil society and things like that come in because the state has to be responsive to its citizens, or its or the state itself is going to lose legitimacy. Okay, so we can't. This is where it kind of gets really complex in trying to understand, okay, well, where does the state have power? Where are they influenced? And, and understanding the influences that come from outside of the official government apparatus can be a little bit tricky. Okay. So if there are questions about that, please make sure write comments below and, you know, we'll try and clear those up as well as, as I can. Okay, so then the next part of this is talking about the evolution of the state. So how did this even come to be? And obviously I can't go through the, the super detailed version, but if we go back, um, you know, a few thousand years, 5,000 years, and, and look at, at the way people were living. So a lot of it was tribal and communal living, so shared or smaller groups. They all shared the cost. Um, and then you, you get ancient civilization. You see, you know, the Egyptian empire, Greece, Rome. And it was really after the fall of the Roman empire, um, that we see the rise of Kings and royalty, which really, as far as we know, it evolved out of the tribal framework. So, the basic story is that you have the strong man of one family defeats the strong man of another family and keeps expanding and keeps expanding their control and it envelops more and more tribes. And eventually you get someone that rules over a larger share of the land. And as this person rolls over these, this larger share of the land and, the, and this kingdom becomes more entrenched in the ways of doing things, then it, it, things became a little bit more stable. Now, also involved in this was religion. So from about the 3rd century uh, through the 18th century, religion was a large part of 
of the state and a large part of its legitimacy. I mean, think about like the Church of England or the Catholic Church in places like Italy and France. Um, and, and it also played a big part for these monarchs because, well, they just, they told the story that they were there to rule by divine right. Okay, but this came into into trouble where the beginning of the trouble came in 1517 with the Reformation uh, because the Roman Catholic Church thought that priests should read and interpret the Bible and then tell people. Martin Luther said people should read it for themselves. And this was a huge shift, okay, brought about in no small part by the invention of the printing press. But now we have a situation where if the church is no longer needed to be the intermediary between God and the people, well, why do we need kings who were placed in positions of power by God? So what it starts to do is makes monarchical regimes illegitimate and calls into question the concept of government. And this all leads to a big crisis for monarchies and really sets the stage for the modern nation state. Okay, and then you add in, you know, around the time of the Enlightenment, you get contract theorists, John Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, you know, saying that people have rights naturally. We get the rule of law introduced. You know, the rule of law is universal. It's contractual. It's rational, meaning that people have thought it out, uh, a move toward laissez-faire economics and a more neutral attitude towards religion. So this kind of sets the stage for these modern states to emerge. And the next question to really explore is, so why, why do states emerge? What is the reason behind this? And one of these theories, so there's four theories. There's the Bellicist theory, economic theories, cultural theories, and the diffusion theories. And the other reading for this week, uh, Herbst, the war in states in Africa, um, is really building on the Bellicist theory. That's the first one we'll get into. So this was made famous by Charles Tilley, and his famous quote is, war made the state and the state made war. And he's saying that we can't explain the emergence of the modern nation state without also looking at how war played into that. And it's really an interesting concept because he's saying for states to emerge, you need several factors. Okay, you need centralized authority, you need the ability to tax a population and raise revenue, and you need the ability to mobilize populations for collective projects. Well, wars were perfect for these. Okay, and he's arguing it led to the rise of states, or anybody in the Bellicist tradition is going to argue that this was key because you needed a centralized authority, the ability to tax, and the ability to mobilize populations to fight wars as well. Okay, so the the need in Europe to fight wars just for survival because you had all these different kingdoms and you were always vulnerable, it was almost like you needed to be able to do these things to fight wars that also helped you build states. So that's one theory, is that this constant um, state of being under threat and um, your survival being in question led you to do these things that actually made your states much stronger, even though in the short term, obviously, the devastation caused by war is nothing we want to see, but kind of a positive unintended consequence is that it allowed states to be built on that infrastructure. Okay, so then we move on to economic theories. 
And remember, these I'm, I'm talking generally. Obviously, when you read the Herbst piece, you'll see how much more detailed things get. But giving you an overview of the main concept. Um, so there are two main types of economic theories. There's the more Marxist uh, explanation saying that um, capitalist classes may favor the rise of states because it allows... Uh, capitalists to make more potential profit and it allows them to exploit labor better. Okay. Um, And then the other explanation would be from someone like Douglas North and uh, his, his other authors that, that wrote violence and social orders, which there's a little blurb in your book about. And they're basically arguing that elite coalitions, craft new institution like modern states to ensure their own rights. Okay, so at some point they these elite groups realized that hey, it's in our economic self-interest to have rights and not privileges and we'll actually make more money. But the the core of the economic theories is that states basically emerged to reflect underlying economic interests, or that's why they came about is that the economic interests, you know, felt it was advantageous for them to create states so they could make even more money. Now, something else to keep in mind is the fact that markets don't just happen. They don't, they're not naturally occurring as kind of as floating out there in pop culture that just if you leave everything alone, markets are going to emerge and that's what's going to happen. They take an incredible amount of work and an incredible amount of regulation to create. So another part of this theory is that in order to create these stable markets where you actually have competition and you actually have um, systems monetary uh, instruments like money, okay, that you need to create a strong state in order to have these things. A great book to check out if anybody's interested is The Great Transformation by Carl Polanyi, where he talks about how the emergence of markets was actually very destabilizing and took an awful lot of work to create. And in doing this, you saw... Uh, a backlash because you were taking societies from their traditional, like, I mean, think back to like little house on the prairie, if anybody remembers that, or like your very traditional, um, agrarian type societies that people were moving to cities, uh, new markets were being created, new types of jobs were being created. There's a, actually a lot of parallels to that today with the upheaval that certain technologies are playing and AI and things like that. But keep in mind that another main tenet of this theory is that states needed to be strong in order to create these markets that would allow the economy to grow. Okay, and then the next theory is the cultural theory. So in general, this is arguing that ideas and culture or ideas and cultural forces in people's lives led to favoring the state as an organization. And there's two theories that fall under this that uh, your book talks about. 
Okay, the first one is that religious changes with Protestantism reshaped attitudes towards the role of institutions in daily life. And there's another blurb about Philip Gorsky. And he talks about the role of Calvinism, where it's very austere, very disciplined. So people were kind of primed to accept the authority of the state. Okay, so the state stepped in where previously religion had been. So you basically had this network of, um, or not necessarily a network, you had this way of thinking about the world that the state basically just replaced religion. And for people, instead of religion telling them what to do, it was the state. So they were kind of primed for that. Okay, the second one is by Leah Greenfield. And her theory says that the emergence of nationalism led people to accept the nation state as a natural in air quotes, and legitimate form of organization. Okay, so she argues that the state needs national identity to come into form and to be accepted. So people identifying as a member of a nation state see that state as an expression of the nation, they're willing, and they're willing to accept its legitimacy as well as sacrifice for its well-being um, and also justify state expansion because of natu- national pride or national interest. So next week we'll get into more of nationalism and how that may feed into the building of states, but also it has another side where it can can destroy them as well. But Lee Greenfeld is arguing that this can't be ignored when, when you're talking about the emergence of states. Okay, and then the the last theory of why states came about is, or the last class of theories about why states came about is our diffusion theories. So they look more at the spread of states outside of Europe. Okay, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that every that everywhere would end up with states. Okay, so why did it spread around the world? Um, there's really three different theories when when it comes to to this diffusion theory okay there's three theories under that umbrella first is states had military advantages over non-states and they they came to dominate so europeans brought this form with them when they colonized and it also provided economic and social advantages over other forms of political organization so i mean with economics and um, standardizing currencies and measures and weights and things like that, it offered advantages. So like some people refer to that as it being rational and that they standardized everything. So it would be predictable and people understood how much their money was worth or how much things were going to cost or what the length of stuff was. It gave them common terms to, to be able to talk to each other about things. And it also established clearer territorial boundaries. You know, it's not our state ends at that stick over there. It's, no, they, they mapped it out and drew it and made it very clear where the territorial boundaries are. Okay, so all going back to this military advantage over non-states and the other things that came with the European style of state came to dominate the world. Okay. And then the second theory under this diffusion theory uh, umbrella is that states reflected needs of economic interest that pushed for state creation everywhere. So this is, is saying that basically imperialism and colonialism um, 
pushed for this in order to create new markets, get raw materials, exploitable labor, and increase their wealth. Um, so if you could get states established in other places to subdue populations that didn't have uh, the ability to defend themselves or that you could get to work for you as slave labor or uh, very cheap labor, it was a way for you to increase the how much stuff you could sell and then you could sell it back to them or you could sell it to other parts of the world. So that's the, the other theory under this diffusion theory is that it goes kind of hand in hand with economic interest and especially with uh, imperialism and colonialism. Okay, and then lastly is that state organization became an important idea or cultural reality that took everywhere. So it kind of made sense for people. It, it was they they were able to process it and just came to believe that this was the best way to to go. Okay, so in a I mean in a a nutshell, these are just looking at why it spread outside of Europe because. You know, generally why states emerged and why they spread, it's not necessarily going to be the same phenomenon. I mean, if you were colonized by somebody, you didn't necessarily choose that or you didn't choose that. And, you know, that makes it a different explanation than, you know, why did France emerge as the first modern nation state in, uh, you know, the late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, okay, so moving on from that, we're going to finish up with just quickly talking about some of the characteristics of modern states and then functions of modern states. And I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on this because it's pretty straightforward. So the, there are three main characteristics of a modern state, the first being a bureaucracy. You know, this is simply a form of organization that has individuals operating and working under established, specified, and complex rules. I mean, the classic bureaucracy is uh, the DMV, if you've had to go get a driver's license, and people tend to not like it. Or, I mean, think about it, you're at a state institution for school. There are certain rules that we have to follow, that the administration has to follow, that you have to follow as students, that the bureaucracy will let you do certain things and they won't. They let you schedule classes at a certain time and other people at different times, they have to come up with these different rules that get applied to everybody. Okay. And bureaucracy may not be pleasant when we have our encounters with it, but it's one of these characteristics of modern States and it's better than something that's not organized at all. Okay. And then the next part is in personality. So states identified with institutions rather than the personalities of their leaders. Okay, this is why when like the most the the recent stuff about President Trump saying that he he wants loyalty to him is problematic is because he's wanting loyalty to the individual and not to the office of the president of the United States. Okay, so that is one of the big differences. It's not a personal um, institution, regardless of whether you're the president, you're the mayor, you're a part of city council, you're the secretary of state, you know, those institutions and those offices are what the state is identified with, regardless of who is in them. 
So this was a really big change from medieval times when a lot of times like your king or queen is who the government was identified with. I mean, those of you that are fans of Game of Thrones, every time leadership changes, the character of that, if you want to call it an office or, you know, the king or the queen and the way that they operate, it changes because it's identified with whoever's in that seat and not with the office itself. Okay, so it's very different. Even modern authoritarian states, I mean, there was there have been many books written about uh, the cult of personality, like for Joseph Stalin, but you know, once he died, the Soviet Union didn't disintegrate. They had procedures and they put in a new premier. Okay, so that's very different with modern nation states than with your, you know, older dynastic monarchies and and things like that. All right. And then finally, it's sovereignty. States are the ultimate authority within their specifically demarcated territories. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. You know, again, in the U.S., it's weird because, like, Minnesota, the state government has – sovereignty over that but at the same time it's under a larger umbrella of the united states okay but within the territory of the united states they have the ultimate authority the united states the federal government does okay within the state of france or the country of france they are the ultimate authority the french government okay nobody from the Netherlands is going to come down and tell France what to do, just like Canada is not going to tell us what to do. Okay. Um, And then lastly, some of the functions of modern states, and these have changed a lot through time just because states have gotten bigger and gotten more powerful and um, have needed to, to serve more functions of the public. So, I mean, some of these functions are taxation, obviously, defense and policing, um, economic management. I mean, we have the Federal Reserve. Uh, we've got the Treasury Department, money supply. They, you know, the, the governments will do things with uh, taxation and spending to try and influence the business cycle and try to make the economy better. There's also human capital, which is... Public health, education, I mean, things like uh, preventing pandemics, funding medical research for new drugs, new treatments, educating the population so they can understand the society they're in and what it means to be a society and what role the citizen is to play. Um, Also educating people so they can create and start businesses and be properly trained for jobs in order to help maintain a dynamic economy. Okay, another thing, and this is one of the more recent ones, is the welfare state. Uh, So the social safety net, social insurance, health care access, especially for those who are elderly or who um, may not have much money, those that are the poorer segments of the population. In the U.S., we've got uh, Medicare and Medicaid to deal with the elderly and the poor. Um, But the welfare state has become something that is very common. I mean, you go to Europe and it Every country has it, and people have come to rely on it, and that is considered a function of a modern nation state. And then lastly, but definitely not not least important, is infrastructure, roads, ports, public utilities. You know, when you pay your e-web bill, you know, that is the government supplying you with water and electricity. 
Okay, so I mean, that is really important for a state functioning and keeping the economy going and also making sure that people's lives are uh, predictable and kind of normalized. Okay, so in finishing up here, I know we've covered an awful lot of stuff and thank you for bearing with me on my first ever podcast. It's definitely a little weird to be talking to a computer and not to see your faces to make sure that I am explaining things right or that you're following along. But today we did cover a lot of ground. And just to kind of recap, we were talking about the state. We defined some concepts early on, the state, state capacity, weak and failed states. We then went into, well, why states? Why did they emerge and expand? And then we finished up talking about the characteristics of modern states and the functions of states, so what they actually do. Um, If things were confusing or there's something that um, you didn't quite understand, please leave comments uh, below this on Canvas. And next week, we're going to be talking about nationalism with Dr. Shauna Meehan. So make sure you're keeping up on the readings, you're watching the videos. Stop by my office hours. They are every Tuesday and Thursday from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. If you can't make it, then please email me. We can set another time up to meet. Um, If you're not on campus, obviously, please email me if you have anything to discuss. We can also arrange to have some kind of communication over the computer. But outside of that, I will see you next week right here. Have a good one.